Welcome back to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Turkle. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. I'm really grateful that you tuned in to my little podcast project here. If you've been listening to Studs, if you've learned something, if you've taken some solace in our conversations, then let me give you a chance to give back. Head over to patreon.com studs and see what you can get for supporting the podcast. No pressure, but for as little as a couple bucks a month, you can help keep Studs going strong. And look, if you're not in a position to patronize this project, maybe you could be so kind as to show your support by leaving a rating, leaving a review, or better yet, just send a link of your favorite Studs episode to someone who you think would share your interest. This episode of Studs features my conversation with virologist and infectious disease expert, Dr. David O'Connor. Dave talks about building a scientific community devoted to cultivating cutting-edge research to, well, to save lives, really. He started a lab at the University of Wisconsin-Madison before he turned 30 years old. He and his team have worked extensively on HIV and more recently on Zika and COVID. Join Dave and I in conversation as we discuss the joys and the burdens of running a university research lab. We dive into the promise and the peril of being a publicly-minded scientist in a post-truth, defiantly anti-science cultural landscape. Now, I gotta tell you, Dave was recommended to me by Studs patron and all-star guest Richard Schwartz. And frankly, I was reluctant to even contact Dave because... Well, I mean, I just didn't want my little podcast project here to interfere with his vitally important work. But Dave was totally game. He was game because he embodies the spirit of the Wisconsin idea, an idea deeply rooted in a near religious commitment to public virtue and public service. So we got him on the horn, and here he is, wrapping up season four of Studs, a season that began with a world-class stripper and ends with a world-class scientist. I hope you'll enjoy me in conversation with Dr. Dave O'Connor. Dave O'Connor, welcome to Studs. Thank you so much for being here. How do you describe what you do? Thanks, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm a virologist and an infectious disease researcher at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And how did you get on this path? It was an accident. When I was growing up, I didn't know any scientists. I had never met a professional scientist until I went to college. And one day early in my freshman year at the University of Illinois, I was running with a friend of mine and we stopped at a bookstore. And there was a display of a new book called The Coming Plague, Emerging Diseases in a World Out of Balance. And I bought the book on a whim, ran home with it, and read it over the next couple of weeks. And I was really taken by these descriptions of diseases that had emerged. And this was in 1994. So in the half century before that, since the 
uh, development of antibiotics right around uh, the end of World War II to the end of the 20th century, that even though we didn't have to think about diseases that make us sick very often, these diseases were emerging in various places around the world, and they were popping up like whack-a-mole. There would be Ebola showing up in Central Africa and uh, Bolivian hemorrhagic fever showing up in South America. And a big part of the book was dedicated to HIV, which was at the time an untreatable disease with 100% mortality. And as I read this book, I was captivated by this idea that as the world was changing, as people could move around the world very, very quickly with unprecedented speed, we could be ferrying microbes, we could be ferrying germs and diseases around the world with us. And when I got back to the university, I had an opportunity to apply for a research program. And I had never really won academic accolades of this sort before, but one of my roommates convinced me to apply. And I wrote an essay that basically said that doing research on infectious diseases sounded fascinating, based entirely on what I had read in this book. And then much to my surprise, a couple of weeks later, I found out that I had been selected for this program, which gave me an opportunity to start working in a lab as a freshman in college. And I was a bumbling, inept, incompetent, <laughs> uh, choose your words. I had no business being in a lab. But I learned what a lab environment was about. I learned what doing research science was all about. And the people in the lab were incredibly patient with me and all of my missteps and failures. And they appreciated how hard I tried, um, even <laughs> though I was abjectly terrible at actually doing the science. And I, I wasn't good in the lab. I had a hard time understanding all of the complex concepts, but I stuck with it. And several years later, I came to the University of Wisconsin-Madison for graduate school and uh, had the opportunity to study HIV uh, as part of my doctoral research. And that actually got me right into the thick of it. And made me part of something that was much bigger than myself in this global community of people who are trying to improve the response to HIV. And as that experience came to a close, I had to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And I, I didn't really know. I finished my PhD and I thought I could go into advocacy work. I thought I could stay in research. I thought I could go into to patent law. At the time, I was pretty negative about uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, and the way they were profiteering on HIV drugs. And so I thought maybe I could work on that. I had a bit of an affinity for doing science on the computer. So I thought maybe I could help do computational biology. I just really didn't know. But my then uh, girlfriend, uh, now wife, was still finishing her PhD and had a couple of years after I finished before she finished. And during that time, I had an opportunity to stay in a lab and continue doing research. And after those extra couple of years, I was offered a position to begin my own research group here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So this was back in 2004, 2005. Uh, and I started my, my own lab back then and have been here ever since. 
It's really impressive. You were about 30 years old at the time, young, bright, wicked hardworking, and you had this opportunity to establish your own lab at a major university. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the work of establishing a lab at a university. Like, what does it take to get that thing moving? Well, a constant theme that we'll probably touch on time and again today is that in science, success or failure is very rarely about yourself, and it's all about the team of people that you're working with. And the same was true when I was starting my lab. I was really lucky in that I had uh, uh, an individual named Kendall or Kenny Krebs who was uh, working with me before I started my own lab when I was in doing research science in um, my previous lab. And he decided to take the jump with me. And so together, we did the hard work of setting up the lab, which meant figuring out how to buy all the things, the pieces of glass, the pieces of plastic, the computers, the scientific equipment, getting the regulatory approvals. There was a lot that went into starting the lab. And when you're starting your lab, the university in the sciences gives you what's called a startup package. And that startup package are basically funds that they give you kind of like a a research signing bonus, but with the expectation that you'll be able to leverage them into ongoing research support, which in my field typically comes from the National Institutes of Health or NIH. And so with these very generous, though still scarce startup funds, Kendall and I had to figure out how to start a lab up as efficiently uh, and as frugally as possible. So I remember going uh, lab dumpster diving with him uh, (laughs) at various places around campus uh, where there were things that other people were throwing away uh, and asking, well, could we use this? If it's not totally broken, might we still get some some value out of it? And so there were times that we were walking big carts of discarded lab equipment across the Madison campus because that was a way to get uh, things for the lab on the cheap. And I was exceedingly lucky. Um, Kendall started in my lab when I started my lab in 2005, but he left pretty soon thereafter because his wife uh, had started med school in Chicago. And one of the people who applied to replace him was named Roger Wiseman. And Roger had a CV that was much, much longer than mine. So his resume, my resume at that time was like two pages long. His was like 25 pages long. Okay. Why is this guy applying to work in my lab? Well, he had been very, very successful as a scientist in his own right, but had uh, gone through some just career transitions and wanted to be involved in HIV work, which is what I was doing at the time. That was the only thing my lab was working on. And so I invite him into the lab and he's significantly older, more experienced, more accomplished than I am. And I said, really, are you sure you want to work in my lab? It seems like uh, I should be working in your lab. Right, right. And he said he was, he was, he was sure. And he was just something he wanted to do. And I hired him as my employee number two in my lab, Kendall being the first. 
And that was in the late summer of 2005. And 16 years later, Roger is still working with me. And I'm very lucky in that he and several other of my early staff members have been with me through this entire journey. And it's the value of having people who have that kind of institutional knowledge, who have the sort of intuition about how we all work most effectively uh, that allows us to function as a really great team and work together to solve hard problems. Can you talk to me a little bit about the way you see your role on the team? Like on one hand, it's your lab. On the other hand, you're a humble dude, you're a team player. So how would you describe your role? Well, when you start a lab, no one tells you what the skills are that are required to run a successful lab. When you're an undergraduate student and you're working in a lab, you're learning how to work in a lab without killing yourself, how not to set your hair on fire, how not to blow up an autoclave. And when you're a PhD student, you're learning how to think, how to design experiments and then perform those experiments and then describe the results. But when you're running a research lab, you're responsible for other people and you're responsible for managing what amounts to a small business for science. And a lot of those skills are ones that you don't learn as part of your training. And so what I did when I first was thrust into this role is I looked to people who had done this in different fields. And so I would read uh, John Wooden's books about leadership and um, I would shamelessly borrow some of his aphorisms about not confusing activity and achievement and trying to do your best all the time. And that was the thing that you should be judged on, not whether you win or lose. And so a lot of my early leadership um, strategies were, were plagiarized uh, nakedly from you know, John Wood. <laughs> you and wouldn't be the first. Times, no, well, and I shouldn't have been because they're fabulous. Indeed. Um, and especially in a field like science where There is a never-ending amount of material you could learn and things that you could do. Um, Sort of like in basketball, there's you're never going to be done improving. You're never going to be done improving your free throw form or practicing your defense. There's always film to watch. There's always work to do. The, The same is true in science. And so, figuring out how to be most effective with the limited amount of time that you have in a day, week, month, year is really, really important. And so his lessons and some of the other sports leadership books provided the cornerstone for my mentoring for a long time. As I've gotten bigger in my lab, which is now has about 30 people in it, has requires a different style of mentoring that requires a little bit more structure. I've used some of the other managerial guidance. For example, in the last year working from home, the people at Signal versus Noise who um, you know, make the software tool Basecamp uh, have written several manifestos about working from home and the optimal way to, to work in a knowledge economy. Cal Newport's books on how to thrive in a knowledge work economy have been really influential on in how we try to operate a scientific small business. So you have 30 people working at the lab. 
do you have undergraduates and grad students working there? Are you hiring from within faculty? How does all that work? Yeah, so we have a variety of people at different career stages. So the most senior person is uh, the aforementioned Dr. Roger Wiseman, who has been working with me since 2005. He was and is much older than me. So he's in his 60s. So he's the uh, both literal and figurative senior person in the lab. And we have a series of other scientists who have PhDs. We have a couple of people who are pursuing MDs along with their PhDs. We have other graduate students who are pursuing their PhDs. We have a group of bachelor's degree research scientists or people who have finished undergraduate degrees in biology or related fields and are are getting some real-life work experience before applying to graduate school or medical school or veterinary school. Um, And we also have some scientists who have uh, just want to be career research scientists. One of them, Julie, has been with me since 2006 And she is, again, just an absolutely indispensable part of the lab. And she helps supervise a lot of the even more junior people. So just like I had an opportunity to do research as an undergraduate, I think it's really important to provide that same sort of opportunity to others. So at any moment, we'll typically have about five to seven undergraduates who are working uh, in the lab, either at the same time as they're attending school. So they'll do 10 to 20 hours a week during the school year. And then they'll usually work in the lab full-time during the summer. And so uh, it becomes a summer job. It becomes a source of income during the school year for them. And then in recent years, we've even gone a little bit younger. And through the Wisconsin Youth Apprenticeship Program, have had one high school student working in the lab for about the last five years. Uh, And that's been especially delightful because the first high school student I had um, joined my lab as a junior in high school, worked with me until she graduated, and she is now graduating uh, college. She's come back to work in the lab during the summers. And when she uh, finishes college, she's going to go off to grad school. And my second high school student is still working in the lab. She graduated high school, decided to stay at University of Wisconsin for her undergraduate. And so she's a, becoming a biomedical engineer and she still works in the lab. And now the third uh, high school student is still a junior in high school. So it's been really satisfying to work with people who are really smart and who are at all different stages of their careers. So not to get too far into the weeds, but I do want to get an imagination for what this lab looks like. Like how how big is it? How much space do you have? Is there room to maneuver? Is there music in the background? Uh, Does everybody wear a lab coat? And if so, what color is it? Sure. So our lab environment does not necessarily match what uh, a lot of people might expect because we have about a 20,000 square foot building that is shared between five different research labs. And we all work on infectious disease research. What's unusual about this, though, is that all of those labs are headed by people who have been friends with one another for a really, really long time. So my wife, Shelby, has a research group of about 
five or 10 people. Uh, she has her lab in the same building. So my wife and I have offices that are literally next door to one another. Oh, how cool is that? She actually is the newcomer though, because she did her PhD research on cancer and then moved into HIV back in around uh, 2006, 2007. Meanwhile, one of the other labs led by Tom Friedrich, Tom and I started grad school at the same time in the late 90s and have been working together ever since. And so Tom and I talk uh, during the day probably more than Shelby and I do because our labs <laughs> work extremely closely together. And um, one of the other labs is led by Matt Reynolds. Matt and I have also been working together since 1998 and have never really stopped working together. And then the last lab in the building is uh, led by a gentleman named uh, Dave Evans. Dave was a senior graduate student when I was a junior graduate student. He left Wisconsin for about 10 years and then returned. So we've also been working together since the late 90s. So collectively, the five of us have been working together for more than about 100 years, which makes me feel very old. <laughs> but because we all work so well together and because we've uh, had such long relationships, our lab space is separated by function rather than by person. So I don't have a lab space that's Dave's lab space. I have a big room where I have a space and Shelby has a bench and Tom has a couple of benches and all of our staff work shoulder to shoulder, side by side. And then we have other spaces in the building that are for different types of science. For example, we have a specialized facility uh, with higher biocontainment for working with live viruses. And we all work in that space together. We manage it collectively. We organize it collectively. Um, and we sort of work as kind of a, a big super unit oh, cool. instead of as a bunch of individual laboratories. And, and so one of the great losses in the last 20 years, in my opinion, is the loss of music in most of the labs. When I was a student, figuring out how to negotiate different people's musical preferences was <laughs> right, like right. a huge uh, camaraderie building activity. Yeah. Now everyone has their own ear pods um, and their own music, uh. though in that big virus lab where you can't have headphones in, that's the one place where uh, musical diplomacy still needs to be, <laughs> uh, you know, still needs to be exercised. Now, it is your, your lab, but you do have 30 splendid colleagues. So I have to ask, can you talk a little bit about this music diplomacy? Like, how are these decisions made? Is it per song, per album? Because you strike me as an album guy more than a song guy. So how does this all work? You are absolutely right. I am an album guy. So most of my time now is, as a leader of the lab is spent in meetings, in offices, and in front of computers. And so I don't usually have to go into the lab to do experiments myself, though last year in the very early days of the SARS coronavirus epidemic, I was in the lab pipetting and moving liquids around and doing experiments because at the time we didn't have a great handle on what all of the biosafety risks might be. And so I, I've always had the mentality that you shouldn't ask anyone to do things you wouldn't be willing to do yourself. And so if we were going to be working with a virus that was potentially going to create a risk, I was going to be right there in, 
the front of the charge. And so I was in the lab last year, but typically I, I don't have to do that. I have to say that now there's also, you know, the cognizance of, of seniority. People probably defer to me more than they would defer to one another uh, when it comes to listening to music. Um, but it's often whoever gets there first. So if you're the first person there and there's silence, you can uh, start up a Pandora station, which I think is a very popular way of doing it because you get a mix of music. Um, though there have been times where someone um, in one of the labs used to really like show tunes. In a lab? And that person was not particularly popular, though Good. because of the rules of music diplomacy, if he was there first, show tunes would get a play for an hour. That's rough. That, that creates for a rather inclement working environment. But Everyone gets to have their say, I suppose. It's democracy in action, right? It is. I still long for the days of CD players where uh, everything was going to be a maximum of 74 minutes long, yeah. and then you would have to physically decide that you were going to and replay the same CD or, or change it up. And so there are some CDs from when I was in the lab that are still seared into my memory. The Gross Point Blank soundtrack was yes. one that almost everyone could agree upon. And so that was really heavy rotation for a long time. Yeah. Um, okay, so we have a, a little bit of a sense of what it's like in the lab. It's a, it's a complex, right? You got five labs, 20,000 square feet. It's um, more than we're going to be able to really wrap our heads around. But it sounds like there's a real sense of camaraderie. There is a sense of family. There's a sense of shared history there. Is it fair to say it's, it's kind of a special place? Oh, a absolutely. I think that for, we've all grown up together, we've worked together, we support one another uh, through both professional and personal successes and failures. Uh, you know, we've all been to one another's weddings and have seen, you know, life changes with kids. And in a field where there's often a lot of personal mobility, where uh, someone's a professor and it becomes kind of like free agency in, in sports, where the way that the way that academic research works in the US at least is that for every hundred dollars in grant funding that comes in to support lab research, uh, there are facilities and administration costs, otherwise known as indirect costs, that go to the university for their uh, administrative use. And that's 53. Uh, and a half dollars on top of that hundred dollars at the University of Wisconsin. The rate varies from place to place, but that means that for a hundred thousand dollar grant, um, our university gets an additional fifty three thousand five hundred dollars for administration. And that means that if you have a fairly large lab like mine that brings in several million dollars in research funds every year, um, the university is receiving a significant amount of indirect costs uh, for administration and for other types of university operations. And so that creates a strong sense of competition amongst the peer universities for uh, faculty who are pretty strong at getting these competitive grants. And so a lot of um, faculty who are in the same sort of field as I'm in uh, tend to be pretty mobile. They'll relocate from university to university every three, five, 10 years. So it's pretty unusual to have a group of us who have made our 
homes since graduate school, all largely in one place, have developed our careers in one place and have no desire or intention of leaving. Uh, so that sense of permanence is really unusual among uh, researchers. And it, I think, cultivates that sense of stability that is really elusive in most professional endeavors. And so it's something that we're really grateful for. And, you know, in, in universities, you still have this notion of tenure. And so uh, all of us, save for Matt Reynolds, who started his lab uh, most recently, are all tenured full professors, which means that unless we want to move, we will have jobs at the University of Wisconsin for the remainder of our careers. And so not only will we have started our careers together, in all likelihood, we'll end our careers together, which is really pretty special. It sounds special. And I'm, I'm really happy for you, I have to say. It's a real cool thing you have going on there. And my sense is you probably need all the support you can get because the work that you do is exceedingly difficult and the stakes of your research are really high. And I hope you might be willing to talk about what it's like to work in an environment where the stakes are so high and maybe even talk about a time when uh, maybe things didn't go so well and how you dealt with that. Sure. So I remember reading once something about Bill Clinton's ability to put things into a box. He could hear about a subject and he could put it into a box and he could compartmentalize it and then not deal with it again until he had to take it out of the box again. And I think that's a skill that we've had to develop in science as well. So when you are doing this sort of research and you are working on a lot of things, one of the biggest challenges that you have as you move through your career is that the expectation is that you're going to be able to do more and you're going to be able to do it faster. And then whenever you manage to do that, then you have to do more again and you have to do it faster. The um, economist once uh, said that it was like a pie eating contest where the prize for winning is more pie. <laughs> and so you have to get really fast. You have to be um, able to make decisions very quickly. Um, and you need to be able to abide by those decisions, even when they're wrong. And that's uh, something that happens. We make bad mistakes um, when we make decisions, you know, we, 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 we decide to pursue research on something. And it turns out the research question was not nearly as useful or productive as we thought. So examples of, of that would be in HIV, we spent uh, several years, I had an entire student spend his entire PhD research uh, trying to find, you know, specific genetic variants in monkeys that led monkeys to effectively control the monkey equivalent of HIV. And he did the science and we found some things that were really, we thought were interesting. And then we did the experiment to try to confirm whether or not those things that seemed interesting, in fact, were uh, predictive of uh, control of this virus. And it turns out that it was an utter and complete failure. But you have to cast that sort of failure, which is a scientific failure. It was a failure of premise. It was, you know, there were reasons why looking back, we could have said, oh, yeah, we, we could have seen that one coming. 
But it wasn't a failure in the sense that we all learned a lot through the process. And so the next time we would go through the process, we would be able to bring that with us to how we design experiments. The scientist who did that, you know, it was still part of his PhD research. And when uh, he graduated, he's now doing genetics work down at uh, Emory University in Atlanta. But it was years, huge amounts of money, huge amounts of time, and it was a complete and utter failure. So you just have to be able to be clear-eyed about the fact that not everything's going to work, and you have to try to create a balanced portfolio of projects that are safer, where its incremental progress is likely to lead to incremental knowledge, and then some projects that are riskier, where you might have to take uh, a big swing and you'll either hit a home run or you'll miss completely. Hmm. Does it have any substantial impact on the morale of the teams involved when substantial mistakes are made and things kind of go cattywampus? Well, that's a big part of my job is to make sure that especially for people in our, in our fields um, of infectious disease research. It's, it's highly competitive. Most of the people who are drawn to it have been pretty successful in all of their academic pursuits. Um, you have to be a pretty good student to get into grad school. You have to do pretty well in grad school um, to become a, a scientist. Um, so if we submit a grant to the National Institutes of Health, and they're funding 10% of all the grants that get submitted, you have to develop a tough skin because 90% of what you end up submitting for funding is not going to get funded. Um, you have to get fast so that you put a lot of grants in so that you know a small number of them can come through. But you have to get used to the idea that your peers are going to tell you you're a failure 90% of the time. Right. And that's okay. You, you, you do develop that skin over years and years and years of doing it. But if you're new at it and it's your first or second time having this experience and you're accustomed to being a success in everything that you've ever done in your life, yeah, making sure that the people who are really vulnerable and who are new in the process are uplifted and are supported through those inevitable failures so that they have an opportunity to see that as part of the growing process is, is really important. And as a leader of the lab, that's one of my biggest jobs is as cheerleader to help people get through that and help them realize that a failure or um, a rejection of a manuscript or a rejection of a grant or um, you know rejection of a job offer doesn't mean um, that it's any sort of indictment of you as a person. Um, it's purely scientific and you know, one of the pieces of advice I end up giving to a lot of the people I mentor is that you may love science, but it's not going to love you back. Mm. And so as soon as you realize that, you put it into a box and you just, you try not to let it define you one way or the other. I like the way you look at that. Not only is it inspiring, it's sort of instructive uh, for me. I think I kind of needed to hear that. So thanks. I'm going to ask you a really small question, but it's going to give me um, some roads to walk down. I wonder what percent or what proportion of your average work week 
is spent doing sort of managerial or cheerleading tasks versus grant writing or revising versus administrative stuff versus press or actual like putting gloves on and doing science. You know, as someone who runs an esteemed lab, how do you end up divvying your time between those tasks and others, which I surely missed or don't know about? Sure. So um, let's start with the things that I don't do because those are easier to articulate. So again, with very small asterisks, I don't put gloves on. I don't do experiments. I spend um, most of my time staring at a computer screen. Now, what am I doing when I'm staring at that computer screen? I would say that right now I spend three to four hours a day in some form of Zoom calls. Uh, those might be Zoom calls with members of my lab talking about experiments, talking about things that uh, we need to do, making plans. It might be with administrators from the university. It might be with journalists. It might be doing question and answers with members of the community. I, I spend a, a good amount of my time each day on Zoom. And I actually was doing this even before the pandemic. In 2018, 2019, I was living in Melbourne, Australia for a year on sabbatical. And so my lab had to get used to the lab operating without me being around. And so we were asynchronous and we were really uh, separated in time zone. And so that's when we sort of put together a lot of the guardrails that we use to orchestrate how we spend our time. When I'm not spending time on Zoom calls, I'm often spending time dealing with some form of written communication. So we spend a lot of our time discussing projects in Basecamp, in Slack, uh, and to a lesser extent over email. So we have really large and vibrant Basecamp and Slack instances where we spend a lot of our time both thinking about things in a longer term, more project-centric way, which is what we use Basecamp for, as well as, as quick communication. Um, we're actually trying to cut back on the quick communication because we think it's almost becoming counterproductive. There's too much of it. Um, and then I don't put gloves on, but I do still analyze data. So as science has gotten bigger in the last 20 years, the data has gotten bigger. So for one example, when you sequence viruses, you hear a lot about sequencing viral variants these days. When I started in the lab as a graduate student, we could generate 100 sequences per day. By the time I was starting my own lab, I was considered a pretty high throughput academic lab. I could sequence about a thousand samples per day. But as technology evolved, that number quickly rose from 50,000 to 100,000 to 10 million to 100 million sequences per day. So the volume of data that we were dealing with became so large that we couldn't deal with it by looking at it manually, looking at it one sequence at a time. And so I had to reinvent myself as a computer programmer and as a data analyst and someone who could work with these really large uh, data sets. And so I still do some of that. I'm not as good a programmer as several people in my lab, but I have one foot in the really deep understanding of the biology and enough of a foot in the computational analysis of the data that when we need to ask a question for the first time, we have to figure out how to analyze a new big data set for the first time. I'm often the one who will get us started and will write the first set of 
tools to, to do that, to analyze that data. And so a lot of it is communication, communication both inward towards the lab and then outward towards the scientific community um, and then others who are interested in the science. And so it varies by day to day, but that's more or less what my, how my time gets divided. Thank you so much for fielding that question. I, I, it gave me a whole bunch of <laughs> further questions I wanted to ask, one of which is this. You know, a lot of what you do is uh, for the scientific community. You happen to work at one of America's best public universities, a, a university founded by the progressive impulse to do public good. I know you interface with private organizations, but you work for a public university. You get a lot of NIH funding. I know that you're very public service oriented. So can you just talk a little bit about the public service components of your work? Yeah, so at the University of Wisconsin in particular, we have something called the Wisconsin Idea, which is this notion that the work that's done within the university and the knowledge that's gained within the university should be used in the service of improving the state and the broader community. And one of the really exciting things that I've been able to do over the last five years is use that as a shield to really test some new frontiers in the interface between science and the community. So in 2016, there was an outbreak of Zika virus in uh, South America, in Brazil in particular. And as it happened, I had had uh, strong research collaborations in Brazil for many years before then. We worked really closely with them on HIV and, and other types of projects. And uh, so I was studying Zika virus very soon after the outbreak started in Brazil because my Brazilian colleagues had clued me into it back in October of 2015, well before it was on anyone else's radar here in the U.S. And so as that outbreak gained steam into early 2016, uh, we were in this unusual position of starting to do research on this emerging virus before most of our colleagues had had a chance to do the same. And we started our experiments to ask how this virus behaves in non-human primates and monkeys in February of 2016. This was a couple of weeks after there was the first case of Zika virus in the United States. And my colleague, Tom Friedrich, and I were doing these experiments together. And one day, right before we're starting, we were asking ourselves, we said, you know, we're going to be the first people with data on this virus in monkeys. And what do we do with that knowledge? We said, well, you know, maybe, maybe we should just make it all public. And we kind of looked at each other and said, well, can we do that? And we said, well, what happens if we do? And we actually had some serious conversations about who would get upset with us if we did this? The university might get upset with us. The NIH might get upset with us. Other people might get upset with us. We're like, well, but is it the right thing to do? Because if it's the right thing to do, we'll just deflect all those issues. There, of course, were also animal rights uh, considerations. You know, there were a whole bunch of potential downsides in that pluses and minuses uh, comparison. And we decided uh, that we would just 
deal with those as it came. So we didn't ask for permission. We just just did it. And so we uh, started a website where we started showing our Zika data literally as it came in. I mean, if, if we got data from what happened on day two of the study, then it was up by the end of day two. Um, and that was really an unprecedented level of data sharing, especially in, in this sort of field. And we maintain that throughout the duration of the Zika virus epidemic. And that spirit of rapid data sharing has actually taken root throughout infectious disease research. So now it's it's quite common to open up a newspaper and see a, a news article based on a preprint, which is a, a scientific report that has not gone through the process of peer review. We were early evangelists for that kind of preprint in the biological sciences as, as well. Uh, and so a small group of us who were doing this, it wasn't just me in my lab, but there were some of our colleagues in the UK who were very open and transparent in the, in, in the Zika outbreak. And we all showed that you could do this and you could still be successful. And I'd like to think that that played a small role in the level of openness that we've seen in this pandemic with data and data sharing, because it's been needed more than ever before. And being able to share that data with the community, the scientific community, and then the general community has also just been a way of being transparent, demystifying the science. And so that's been great. And whenever there was a question about whether it was okay, I'm like, well, it's the Wisconsin idea. It's what we're supposed to be doing, right? Yeah. And that usually muted any criticism. So it, went, it works out okay. Well played, sir. So you, you brought up the sars cov and you kind of you know, spoke briefly about the challenges of this moment. And I can't help but wonder what it means to you to be a scientist, particularly in a post-truth, like defiantly anti-science historical moment. What does it mean to you to be a scientist in this moment? So it's an excellent question. And I think that um, my job as a scientist is also to be a, a truth teller. And in this particular pandemic, um, that meant that very early on, there was a need to try to speak truth to power in a way that is uh, uncomfortable sometimes. Uh, I try to stay apolitical whenever possible because I think that in the role of a scientist is to provide data, um, but the decisions that get made on the basis of that data can be political and societal ones. Um, but when we were seeing such an abdication of leadership in the United States, especially in the early days of the pandemic, it was important to speak up uh, and it was important to um, spend a lot of time in the media um, correcting misinformation, correcting myths. I had actually quit Facebook for, gosh, I don't know, a couple of years. It was, uh, and I had no intention of ever reactivating my account. But when the misinformation started flowing and you'd hear that so much of it was coming out of Facebook, I felt obligated to jump back in and start providing small updates 
and factual content uh, to counterbalance the misinformation flood uh, that was that was occurring. And I can say, well, we tried. We tried to give them factual information. And so as we as we move into a new era where um, SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 is, is going to become endemic, meaning I think the time when we could say that this pandemic is going to end has passed. It's, it's going to be with us for a long time. We, we also have to move into an era of sustained communication to try to neutralize that misinformation. And it's important to emphasize that as time goes on, some of the decisions that are going to have to be made might be made in a way that is seemingly anti-scientific, but isn't necessarily wrong. We will have to decide as a society what sort of mortality we are willing to accept in exchange for what sort of inconvenience. And it's not misinformation to have those sorts of hard conversations. It's uh, what you need to do in a civilized society to sort of make difficult decisions where there are no simple or even correct answers. And that's, again, where I feel like my job isn't to say this is the right answer. It's to say, well, this is the data that can be used to inform the decision. And depending on how you weight different factors, these are the decisions that you might want to entertain. So you didn't get into research science because you wanted to have your face on a television screen, I'm sure. But this pandemic has thrust you into the limelight. You're in the New York Times, you're on the NBC News, you're talking to some bald fool with a podcast. I wonder how you're feeling wearing this particular style of shoes. I mean, I'm grateful that you're doing it. I want to thank you for being an advocate for truth and an advocate for science. But how does it suit you? Well, I feel like I have a face for radio and a voice for print. Um, <laughs> and the it really doesn't suit me. Uh, I'm an introvert by nature. I uh, prefer anonymity. And frankly, doing things that are public facing exhausts me. And there are different types of people in the world. For some people, that's exhilarating. I, I'm thinking in particular, I have a, one of my dearest friends is a researcher for the National Institutes of Health. And several years ago, we visited a mutual friend of ours in Brazil. And we were in Sao Paulo uh, for about a week. And on the weekend, our, our friend from Sao Paulo said, do you want to go to um, spend time with my family over the weekend? We said, sure. So we we went to uh, the city called Itajubá, and we spent a couple of days with my friend's parents and his extended family. And it was lovely. We had a, a great time. Then we're driving back the three hours or so to Sao Paulo, and I'm sleeping in the backseat of the car. My friend, my American friend, Adrian, looks at me and he says, Dave, how can you be tired? We just had a relaxing couple of days. Yeah. And it dawned on me that that was really the, the, the essential difference between us. To him, the socializing, the spending time with people was exhilarating. And to me, it was exhausting. It's a reason we've been great friends for more than 20 years, because whenever we go out, I just have to kind of sit there and make smart ass jokes every now and again. And uh, 
let him do all the socializing. You know, it's something that I've had to overcome and deal with uh, as the pandemic has worn on. I do have a knack for trying to uh, take difficult scientific concepts and make them accessible, but it's not a role that I relish. And if the pandemic recedes and I can go back into anonymity, or at least relative anonymity, that will suit me just fine. So before we get into the things about your work that you enjoy much more than the front-facing side of it, I have to ask, as someone who can communicate effectively uh, some of the complicated facets of science to a public who can't always uh, wrap their minds around the complicated nature of it all, what are the metaphors that seem to work best? What are the communication tools that seem to work best to get the public to understand the complications of SARS-CoV-2? Well, I'm not sure that there's any one that works best. Um, I've often tried to use different sorts of metaphors um, to explain different uh, concepts of this week. Uh, I tried to use one about uh, the score The score at the end of a basketball game as a way of assessing the different vaccines and that you can't really tell how similar or dissimilar they are based on just their, the score at the end of the game if you don't know how the game was played. A couple of weeks ago, I tried to liken the variants that emerge in the UK and South Africa and elsewhere to, to rock songs climbing the charts. I'm often trying to come up with ways of turning things that are scientific into uh, things that are part of, you know, people's everyday lives, whether it's, you know, Justin Bieber songs or, you know, social media networks, because frankly, people do tune out if you talk too much about the pure science, because if, if you lose someone very early on in a conversation, you're never, ever going to get them back. Right. And so if you can keep their attention and you can convey the essence of the idea through something that they're going to be more familiar with. And so music and sports are my go-tos because they're the ones that I can talk most effectively about. Then, then you stand at least a fighting chance of um, getting them to nod at the end and actually understand what you're talking about. Well, thanks for being part of the fight. And like like you said, and like I affirm, the front-facing side of the job isn't your favorite part. I'd be curious to know what the um, favorite parts of your job are. Can you give me a sense of like what you look forward to most when you head to work? Yeah, so I'll answer the question in the bigger scheme of things and then on the day-to-day. So in the bigger scheme of things, it's mentoring people. Most scientists, I talked earlier about how you have to develop a skin around failure. And that's because 90% of the grants you submit are not going to uh, be funded. When I was just starting out in graduate school, uh, the lab literally uh, down the hall from us cultured human embryonic stem cells. It was Jamie Thompson's work. He was featured uh, as Time Man of the Year. And as a, um, you know, he should have probably won a Nobel Prize uh, for this work. Um, My next door neighbor now is Yoshihiro Kawaoka. He's one of the world's preeminent influenza virologists. 
And so when you look down the hall or you look next door and you see people who are who are more successful objectively than you know I will ever be, you have to say, okay, well, not only that, but what are you going to take away at the end of the career? What are you going to look back on and say, this is the thing that mattered? And I realized early on that it, for me, at least, it wasn't going to be manuscripts. It wasn't going to be descriptions of our data uh, for the other scientific community. It wasn't going to be uh, seeing our work described you know, on the news. The things that make me happiest is when people in my lab succeed, when they thrive, and when you can see that the time that they spent in the lab makes a difference in their lives. We're very lucky. Uh, with a very large lab like mine, I get to have this sort of experience uh, with some regularity. Some number of my former graduate students are now running their own research labs. And um, just this last Wednesday, one of the undergraduate students who worked with me then went off to start an MD program at the Medical College of Wisconsin and decided she missed research. When I get an email from her uh, about a week ago saying, I'm defending my PhD thesis uh, on Wednesday, and it would be great if you could tune in. And so I got to watch her defend her PhD thesis. And um, she was incredibly smart and gifted and would have succeeded um, even if she had never spent a minute in my lab, but it was extremely, it's extremely gratifying every time someone who's in my lab um, says, I got into graduate school and, or I got into medical school. Um, and that's the thing that I take the most pride in because it's the thing that is most within my control as a, as a mentor, as someone who works with them on a day-to-day basis. And secondary to that is, in the fall, many of the labs in our building, the, the PIs, the, the heads of the labs, also are often known as PIs or principal investigators, we teach an undergraduate class to about 100 students on the HIV epidemic. And we've been doing this now since 2007, 2008, so pretty good amount of time. And every year, there's a couple of students who say, you know what, I was an English major, but now I want to get a global health certificate or... Uh, I learned what I learned in the class makes me want to work in HIV, work in infectious disease. And I realized that we're able to have the same sort of impact on the the lives and future careers of some of these students as that Lori Garrett book that we talked about at the beginning of the the show uh, had on me. And so to have that kind of impact is a gift that just keeps on giving. And it's something that I'm lucky. I get to experience that kind of positive reinforcement, you know, with some regularity. And and that is by far the, the best part of the job for me. You, sir, are a gift that keeps on giving and you keep on giving this splendid mentorship to the undergraduates and the graduate students at the University of Wisconsin. They're lucky to have you. I love your answer so much so that I hate to do this to you, but I am curious about the flip side What's the biggest grind of your work? And like, how do you grapple with that? Well, the biggest grind is probably administrative. Um, there are um, lots of regulations and rules that govern how science is done. Um, and a lot of this is well-intentioned because there have been lab accidents. There have been 
reckless incidents in labs, but it's created a very risk-averse culture around science and around the, the performance of research um, within university, within academic labs. Uh, so you have these risk-averse uh, regulators who are overseeing the biosafety and overseeing how you design your studies with respect to using animals or, or, or enrolling people in the studies. You have these really strict rules about how science can be deployed, especially in the midst of an emergency like the pandemic. So just to give you a couple of examples, um, there is a, a rule called HIPAA, which is a health privacy law. And one of the facets of that law is that you don't want people to be reading about their medical conditions in the newspaper, which is entirely well-intentioned and a very good thing. But as we've been going throughout the COVID pandemic, there's all this interest in variants, these viruses that have different sequences that we need to, to worry about. We need to know if they're in our community. Well, per a literal interpretation of HIPAA, the most you can say about a particular sequence is that it comes from a particular year. So in this case, 2021, from a particular state, Wisconsin. Hmm. So saying that a particular virus comes from Wisconsin in the year 2021 doesn't do very much to uh, inform the different sort of risk that you might have um, in Milwaukee versus Madison versus La Crosse or Eau Claire, Green Bay. And the work that it takes to overcome some of the risk-averse administrators and rules that have been put into place has a really significant cost on productivity, on research satisfaction. I have two people in my lab. I forgot to mention them earlier when you asked who's in my lab, I have two full-time administrators whose job is to try to insulate me from as much of this as they can, intercepting it before it reaches my desk so that I can try to spend more time running the lab. But the fact that it takes two full-time administrators just to keep us in compliance with the esoteric and often exceedingly risk-averse rules um, is both an opportunity for uh, science to improve as we move into the future um, by trying to come up with something that's a little bit more balanced, um, but also something that acts as a, a major drain on the productivity of the scientific enterprise. How much science isn't getting done because scientists, not just me, but all scientists are locked in this pernicious battle against regulators. Yeah. Yeah, that does sound indeed terribly frustrating. And I can only hope and, you know, frankly, just hearing the, the passion and the enthusiasm with which you speak about your work, I'm going to assume that despite all of that frustration, your love for your work and the pride that you take in mentoring really sort of like overshadows some of the bureaucratic hurdles, the administrative hurdles that you have to face. I'm just going to assume that's true. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, right? You still love it, but it's 
it's sort of the, the administrative elephant in the room. You, you got to deal with it, but you, like Slick Willie, you figured out how to compartmentalize, huh? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Awesome. I love hearing you talk about your work. This has been a real joy, but I can't let you go without sharing with me one professional triumph and one professional failure. If you could be so kind, can you start with the failure so that we can end our discussion on a note of triumph? Sure. So aside from the fact that failure is part and parcel for the business, as I talked about earlier, um, I think one of the professional failures that I, you know, still strikes a chord with me is that you know, for all the value that I put in mentoring others in my lab, my mentor, along with the mentor of several of the people who I work with, um, he left Wisconsin uh, in 2012 um, in a um, fairly abrupt way and in a way that sort of broke a lot of the relationships with me and with others who he had mentored. And the fact that that not only happened in 2012 and has never fully been reconciled is something that still bothers mm. me because his role in my life was as formative or more formative than I am the, the lives of the students who I mentor. And so the fact that that relationship remains pretty broken is, is something that I still I consider a pretty significant professional failure. Oh, I'm sorry, man. That sounds like... Uh... It didn't have to happen quite that way, and there's some pain around it, huh? Well, there is, but you know what? If you don't acknowledge it, then it leads to a false sense of how things really are, and these things do happen. And, you know, one of the things I try hard to do is tell people how things are as candidly as I can, good or bad. So, you know, yeah, it sucks, but here we are. Yeah. You know, I can't say that it will always be thus. Um, maybe things will get better. I'm glad to say that that sort of, you know, fractious relationship hasn't happened with really anyone else who I've uh, worked with. But when it happens with someone who you are close to uh, for many years and who is really an important part of your own professional development, um, yeah, it sucks. Yeah. Sorry, man. Well, hey, you've had so many successes. It's actually pretty amazing. Uh, I'm, re I'm real happy for you to the extent to which it's even appropriate for me to be proud of you. I'm proud of you. I'm proud that you work for a public institution, in particular, uh, the University of Wisconsin. I think the work you do is, it's impossibly difficult, but you're so successful at it. Maybe if you would be so kind, you could talk about one of your successes that really stand out to you? Well, there's a recency bias here, but that's okay. I'm going to still, <laughs> I'll still use it. So when SARS-CoV-2 hit, we realized pretty quickly there was going to be a need for testing alternatives for the virus that uh, went beyond the way that tests were being administered largely at hospitals and big test centers and we saw early on that there was going to be a need for testing, especially in schools. So we started working last spring to start thinking about what testing options might look like in schools. And for a while, that meant that we had our own home-developed test that we were driving around in a minivan in the summer, trying to figure out how we would use it in schools. And in fact, there are two schools here in Dane County, which is where Madison is, that are running 
that homebrew test. They, we taught them how to do it and they're running their own testing programs with that today, which is great. Um, but what was more exciting is that in the early fall of 2020, uh, a new testing kit was rolled out uh, by the company Abbott. And this testing kit seemed to check most of the boxes that we were trying to check with our homebrew test. And so we started working over everyone we could to try to get our hands on some of these tests and eventually succeeded in getting 5,000 of these tests from Assistant Surgeon General Nancy Knight. And she gives us 5,000 tests. And so my office is stacked from floor to ceiling with boxes of these tests. And and so we then said, now we've got to get them into schools. And so my wife, Shelby, and I, along with friends and coworkers, basically started going school to school and district to district here in Dane County, driving up with tests and basically saying, you know, if your school district is willing to learn how to perform these tests, we will work with you so that you can learn how to do it, learn how to be following all the appropriate regulations, learning how to report the results, and we'll give you a box of 40 tests per, per school. And from November to February, we were driving around from school to school and from district to district, ultimately getting a box of these tests um, into more than 120 uh, schools here in Dane County. So each of these schools now, if someone shows up with symptoms that are consistent with potentially having coronavirus, they can do a nasal swab and they can test a student or staff member right there uh, in 15 minutes. Uh, which has been really great. And we basically empowered the schools to go and run their own tests and use the tests how they think the test should be most effectively used. Um, and just in the last several weeks, um, this program has been absorbed by our local public health department, uh, who are going to provide the staffing and support to not only uh, sustain it, but potentially expand it uh, as we move through 2021 and into the next academic school year. And so seeing that our work, even though it's not at all like the basic science that I spend my, my, most of my time doing, but that the work that we did allowed us to contribute and make a difference like this in the community is something that I think is going to be a career highlight, even when I look back, you know, 10 or 20 years from now. I love it. I'm smiling ear to ear. It's the Wisconsin idea in action. Fighting Bob LaFollette is pumping his fist from the grave. <laughs> it's awesome. And of course, as a public school teacher myself and someone who cares deeply about this notion that we have of the public, uh, your success brings me great joy as our conversation today has brought me great joy. Dave O'Connor, thank you so much for everything that you do. And thank you for spending some time with me. It has been a pleasure to have you on Studs. Oh, this was great. I got to talk about things. And you know, you make me think about questions that I don't have to think about very often. And so when you do that, sometimes you know, taking a breath and thinking through some of these answers to these types of questions is incredibly reinvigorating. So thank you for, for making me do this, not making me do this, making me work <laughs> through the answers because I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Dave, I wish you safe travels and thanks again. Bye. All right. Bye now. 
All right, friends and loved ones, that there was my conversation with Dr. David O'Connor. Dave's a good guy. I'm so glad that he made the time to speak with me. And he did so, I believe, the night before he hopped on a flight to get some much-deserved rest and relaxation on Hawaii. And while it is surely the case that he'll be running his lab from the middle of the Pacific, I hope he takes some splendid hikes and catches some sunsets while drinking cocktails out of a pineapple. If that's something that people actually do on Hawaii, (laughs) I'm not sure, but something like that. What I'm trying to say is I hope Dave has a chance to recalibrate his work-life balance while he's hanging out in paradise. Season four of Studs has been a labor of love. I have enjoyed every second of it. I'm going to take a couple of weeks off, record some interviews, think about how I can make this podcast better. I'm so grateful that you listen. If you find joy in this podcast the way I do, here's what you can do. Pick your favorite episode from season four and send a link to someone you love. You can do it now if you want. You've got a lot to look forward to in season five, and I hope you have a lot to look forward to in your lives. Spring is in the air, and there's always room for hope. I wish you all love, peace, and happiness, and I look forward to being with you in a couple weeks. Like me, you're a father, and we both had to explain this to our kids, you know, the, the, the notion of an album. Justin Bieber's album dropped. Justin Bieber, who I have no real knowledge of or particular fondness for, but uh, I, I told my daughter and I said, do, do you, do you want to listen to it? She said, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll give it a listen. But she knows that like, when you put on an album, you have to listen to the whole album. And about track three into Bieber's new album, for the first time in my house, that rule was summarily broken. We could not, and there was no reason to make it through that album. I don't know why I wanted to tell you that, only to show that I I stand with you on the album front. A, a riff on that story is that um, in the summer, my son's a little older, he's 12. And so he's done the summer swim team here in, in Madison is a big thing. And they have a bunch of little pools and they have a big all city swim meet. And every weekend they'll have a little competition with other swim clubs. And a couple of years ago, they needed a DJ and no one was volunteering for it. And so I said that I would DJ the kids swim meets. And I've always said that, you know, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. And so I took this incredibly seriously. And so I started listening to the iTunes top 100. I would start listening to it in the background. I would have the iTunes top 100 Australia or Britain. But I've actually, as we're getting closer to summer, I've been doing the same thing again. I watch the must-see videos on um, on iTunes Music. I try to figure out what the, what the kids are listening to. So I have a 
appreciation of, of many songs feat Justin Bieber. You know, I, I, I like a lot of it. I, I, I do. I, I'm an unapologetic pop fan. I always have been, which actually is nice because it also provides common ground when one of my grad students tells me that he's been listening to the new Taylor Swift album, you know, on repeat for that last 12 hours. And I can say, yeah, I listened to it, you know, yesterday too. So it's, it's not all bad. Right on. Well, she is a bona fide American treasure, so you can't you can't deny. Absolutely, this is Taylor Swift's world, and you and I are just living in it. Absolutely. <laughs>